episode of the Better Two Podcast is brought to you by Kitty Mystic and DM Needham, author of My Days with the Dark Muse, as well as Love is Worth Waiting For. Hi, gang. Donna here. Thanks for tuning into the Better Two Podcast. Today's guest is Zagan Seth Trusty. Some of you guys, actually, if you've been a fan of the show for quite a while, he was my third guest. His name was Robert. And he explains why he changed his name from Robert to Zagan. And it actually has a lot of meaning. On this journey today, we talk about growing up with an abusive parent, not just parent, though, parents, because he's a child of alcoholic of two alcoholics and all the things that kind of have led up to him having to re-identify himself and to get past the trauma, which is part of the name change, actually. So listen to his journey. Hi, Zagan. How are you doing today? I'm very good. How about yourself? I'm doing good. I am doing good. Um, Some people may know you from an episode you did quite a while ago, almost a year ago. So, um, which was definitely a different episode. And we talked about coming out in the eighties, but today's episode, you know, you and I kind of are wanting to talk about trauma and childhood trauma. So tell me what you want to talk about, because this is, this is a big thing. I think that most of us don't recognize where we have our anxiety that where does it stem from? Where does our depression stem from part of it's generational in our DNA, but there's also other things. So for you, where do you think your trauma came from? Well, I think my trauma came from being raised by two uh, abusive alcoholics. Um, It wasn't a very nice situation. Um, You know, I've had my nose broken three times by my father, Um, you know, and from my mother, saying things that a mother never should say to her child. Um, Being, you know, she told me on numerous occasions throughout my childhood and also through my adolescence that she wishes I never was born, that she could have um, had an abortion with me and, you know, other things like that there that was never good enough. I understand. I mean, I, I... My mother had said some things to me that she shouldn't have said. I think that is, there's a certain point where our parents start lashing out at us for their own mistakes instead of looking deep at what may they may need to fix in their lives. It's easier to lash out a child and blame their child for whatever misdeed is going on in their life. Correct. You know, and, you know, I mean, I understand that, you know, that I, you know, I have bipolar. And, you know, I suffer from depression to start with, Um, you know, but, you know, an onset of adulthood, I've got, you know, PTSD and anxiety. And I think that totally stems from them. Um, You know, the trauma of of being raised in a situation like that there. Um, I also have two sisters. Um, My one sister, she moved in with her boyfriend you know, when she was like 19, 20 years old. And then my other sister, she got married at the age of 17, uh, you know, just to escape the situation. So I was left there alone. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I didn't have anybody kind of there to protect me, um, so to speak, you know. So, you know, so I dealt with, you know, constant, 
thing saying, you know, like you're, you're nothing, you're not going to amount to anything, you're not good enough. And, you know, so that's kind of like where I was left at. Um, I was never allowed to have friends. Um, I was only allowed to have a couple of people actually stay over at the house. And the whole entire time I was afraid that they was going to start lashing out because that's all they did was drink. Um, both my parents, they drank on the job. Um, you know, so I was raised around out. Unfortunately. And I'm not, when I was smiling, it wasn't because of anything you were saying. My dog is like digging in her bed underneath my desk uncontrollably <laughs> for no reason. It's like, why are you doing this? I need to keep a straight face and you're making me want to laugh. So anyway, I apologize. Oh, not that's that okay. Anybody else can, if you're just listening, you're like, what's going on? But anyway, um, that that's the thing about it. When you watch your parents do certain behaviors that you're, you're expecting. I, I often think about this. I often talk about the fact that I look at my father-in-law, my last father-in-law, I look at him as being a father figure. He was older than what my dad was. He was in his eighties by the time or getting ready to be 80 when I met him, he was 80 when he passed. But when I look at him, so, and technically he's my grandparents' age. So that was a, a really weird dichotomy because my husband's, you know, when he met my grandmother, he's like, they're the same age as my dad and mom. I'm like, yeah, well, that's just the facts of life because he was one of five. I was an only. So there's okay. the age difference. But I look at my husband's dad and it was like he was everything that a father should be. He was respected. He, he was somebody that, you know, we had a different relationship because we could joke around, even though I, he looked at me as like a daughter. He would actually be willing to share stories that he wouldn't tell his kids. He'd be willing to curse in front of me where he would never say any of that to his kids. He had this upstanding relationship with them. But the fact of the matter is I still had that relationship with him as well, where I look at my dad who liked to drink, who, you know, I, I remember him coming home from a Christmas party. This is me as an adult. And I had my two young daughters with me, my two stepdaughters. And I said, girls, you can go watch TV because we were getting ready to drive back up to Indiana at the time. And we we're in New Orleans. I said, go watch TV. I need a little bit extra sleep and it'll be fine. And they came back in and they're like, something's wrong with your dad. And mind you, they're at the age of, I believe they were five, six and six and eight at the time. And I'm like, something's wrong with my dad. Okay, you guys stay here. I'll be right back. And I walk in and he had gone to a Christmas party with his girlfriend at the time. So the night before they went to a Christmas party and so I come in and he's on the couch, butt naked, laying face up. And I just remember being mortified and walking out of the room and grabbing the girls. I'm like, okay, you guys just stay here. And I'm 23 at the time. Not that it, I should be shocked, but this is my dad. You're not right. supposed to see your dad like this. And so I'm trying to explain to my kids that, you know, everything's okay. Well, my dad wakes up. He's dressed now and he comes in and he wants to take us to breakfast. He's still drunk. The youngest one is okay with this. The older one is mortified and she doesn't know what to think about my dad. So it's like, you know, I wouldn't expect that from John's dad. My husband's dad, I, I would expect him to be grandpa, normal. And then there's my dad it was good time, Donnie. And it, it just, it's a different, different world. And when you're dealing with somebody that's drinking, you never know who you're going to get. And yeah, I, and then I had the, the mom that was slightly bipolar. 
I mean, she was never formally diagnosed, so we just right. say slightly. But so I have the alcoholic dad and then I have the bipolar mom. So it's like you never know who you're getting and, and growing up. And that's the same for you growing up with two parents that you never know where you're going. While you're a kid, you know how to finesse that. But as an adult, your anxiety starts to creep in because then when you're in a situation where you're uncertain, you're not sure how to go. Because when you were a kid, at least you knew these two people and how they would react. But the outside world, there are other factors and you don't necessarily know how they're going to react. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, and then when you get like the abusiveness in there, um, you know, because like I said, my dad, he broke my nose three times. One of the times he broke it with the telephone just by throwing a telephone at me, um, you know, and then he uh, broke it physically with his hands the other two times. Um, my mother, I don't know if you remember, like, the, the big gallon jugs of open pit sauce, mm-hmm. the glass ones. Mm-hmm. My mother threw numerous ones of those at me and shattered it all over the TV. Um, she's also hit me physically with her hands to the point where her hands was bruised and swollen. Um, <clears throat> you know, and I never fought back. Right. Because that's just one thing you don't do. You don't hit your parents. You, no. you just don't do it. Um, so there's, you, you know, you can do nothing else but to sit there and let it happen. Um, you know, my mother broke the mirrors on our wall from hitting me and missing me. She hit, uh, you know, the, the mirrors on the wall, you know, and I'm not a skinny person and I'm not a short person either. I'm all in fat, you know, and I've always been that way. Um, you know, I mean, my mother threw things at me besides, you know, like the open pit barbecue sauce, and she's hit me with coat hangers, shoes, belts, you know, just whatever she can get her hand on. That was the weapon of choice. Um, you know, it, it, it's not fun being raised by two alcoholics. No. You know, and my mother, she was um, a bipolar as well. I think maybe my dad might have been too. I don't know. You know, I mean, whoever my parents was, there was a beer in their hand. Whether if it was driving somewheres or coming home from work. Um, I can remember my mom, they would drink um, like three to four cases of beer weekly. And my mom would buy two cases of beer for my dad's work for the refrigerator at work. And he would drink those as well in a week's period. You know, so I mean, they were very heavy drinkers. Um, you know, so I had to deal with that. There was no choice. I had to deal with that. My mom actually left work on numerous times because she would get so drunk that she couldn't function at work after lunch. My my dad, um, he had a garage besides being a fireman. He had a garage and his garage. They had T-shirts made called Don's Garage and Social Club. Because at five o'clock when people would come up, pick up their cars, this was in New Orleans, he would you know, they would be booze. They'd bring him alcohol. They'd bring him beer. And so that all sit around and talk and, and hang out and drink. And, you know, I, I look at as an adult, even as a, as a kid and a teenager, when my dad would pick me up to take for a visit, when I would go for a visit, we would go out to Slidell, which was about mm, about 40 hour and a half, 45 minutes away, depending on where, which way we went. And my dad would have a party almost all the time, unless something was going on. But most of the time we had, there were, I can't tell you how many parties they had. 
and he would get plowed and then he would drive me back home or we would go fishing and he would drink while he was on the boat and then he would drive me back home. And I think to myself, do you realize how dangerous that was that you put your own daughter in harm's way and you didn't even think about not to mention the other people on the road and I've never called him on it and now he really can't hear and I won't call him on it, but it's like being around for, I don't know about you, but for me being around people that, cause my grandfather drank too, watching those people drink, it gave me an aversion. So when all my friends were like, let's go party. I'm like, okay. I mean, I've had, I can count how many times in my life I've been drunk. And the fact of the matter is I didn't like the taste of alcohol because even the smell of it just made me sick. Unless it's really masked, I wasn't going to do it. And watching them be so out of control, I think made me go, "Mm, not going to do this. Don't want to do it. And I don't want to follow in those steps where some people, they embrace that. My my half sister, her mom was an alcoholic and my dad. So for her, she wanted to start drinking when she was 15. Zima wine coolers, that was it. And it was just kind of like, me uh uh-uh. no but i had my see, own demons with food so right now see now with me i thought that was like the norm you know drinking so i started drinking at a very young age i was like 18 19 years old and so i thought that was the norm well unfortunately i ended up being an alcoholic um but luckily enough for me i ended up stopped drinking um you know, to a point occasionally I have a wine every now and then, but that's far and few between, you know, I don't drink normally or regularly anymore. Um, you know, cause I, I learned my lesson, you know, I don't drink no more. Um, you know, but it, it's just, I, I don't understand how somebody can do that. Drink like my parents did. Um, I, I don't get it and then try to raise ch- children on top of it. And f- well, at a certain point, and I have to ask, you know, what was, what was their trauma that they were trying to medicate from? And I mean, it could have been something that was currently there or it could have been their own abuse that they had went through as a kid. I mean, we tend to, as you were saying, you, you became an alcoholic. We tend to repeat that trauma for me. Well, I say that I didn't drink. In fact, the matter is my mom decided, hey, you know what? I had a hard day. Your dad and I were going through some stuff. So I'm going to have a custard pie. I'm going to eat the whole custard pie in the day. I'm going to eat a a bunch of eclairs and cream puffs. So I was taught by my mom that food can bring you comfort. So even though I didn't pick up the drinking and it wasn't like I was a, I never gained a lot of weight until I got older, but that became there was the lesson for me that food can bring you comfort, not so much the alcohol. I had already had the aversion in my head to alcohol. And I think that has to do with my dad getting nasty with me because it it my dad went from being a very nice man when they were together to when he became the party man and not wanting to hear anything I said. That's right. when things kind of for me shifted that I don't want to be around that. I can't tell you how many times. And I look back and I go, man, some of the music I most likely could have heard at the jazz fest, I would have loved. But the fact of the matter is my dad would pick me up. We'd go to the jazz fest. He dropped me off in the kid area. 
And then he'd go get lost and get drunk and whatever. We would go to festivals all the time. And it was like, I'd be on the rides, which was fine. But my dad wasn't spending any time with me. So it was always like, to me, it became alcohol means detachment from him even more so than what you got. And this is a man who used to carry me to bed over his shoulder saying in sack of potatoes for sale. This was a dad who was really a dad for a certain point. And then it was different. And, and speaking of, then I go back to my mom. When all this happened, my mom lost her freaking mind. And I deliberately failed the test. And so my mom beat me. I mean, she literally beat me because I told her I deliberately failed an entrance exam to a school. And she for $25, she beat me so bad that she called one of our friends to come get me before she killed me. Oh, geez. And then, then a couple months later, when we went to Mardi Gras, she decided to... While my dad had me for Mardi Gras, she decided that she was going to try to OD on some sleeping pills. So when my dad got back to the house, he found her, saved her, blah, blah, blah. So that would start this whole thing of that. I I didn't really think about until I got older. Right. She tried to commit suicide. And that's that's a whole nother big rejection factor right there. So like you, you have the alcohol And, and my dad, he would sit there if. I was forced to kneel in the corner and I wasn't doing it. He punched a hole in the door above my head. He never hit me physically, except maybe a spanking. But my mom and him, the last fight they got into, he put a hole in the wall next to her head. He never hit her. But that in itself right there is terrifying. Yes, definitely. Definitely it is. Um, You know, and as far as like the abuse goes, there was like mental abuse as well with me and also the physical abuse. Um, you know, cause they always told me, you know, you, you're not going to amount to anything, you know, and that kind of thing. And then that leads into the adulthood stuff because you're always trying, trying to do your best. You're always trying to overachieve. And then when you don't get recognition for that, then it's just like, you just give up and everything, you know, you give up on your relationships, give up on marriage. You give up on, you know, your house, you know, your housework and things like that there. If you don't get that acknowledgement that, you know, that you've done a good job or that you're doing the right thing. Well, and then you, then you also have the caveat of second guessing your choices that you've made. Did I make the right yes. choice? Because, you know, my mom did the same thing. You can do anything you put your mind to. Oh, wait, five minutes later, let me tell you, one day you're going to fall flat on your face and I hope I'm there to see it. Yes. And I got that a lot when I was growing up and also my adulthood. Mm-hmm. Even now, whenever I speak to my mother, which I haven't talked to her now in a year, um, during the whole process, my name changed. Um, I was getting that up until like a year ago from her. Yeah, and that's the thing. You can't people. I have friends that have family and they're very close with their families. And I've always been slightly envious of my female friends who have great relationships with their mothers. But the fact of the matter is family, you know, while family is always talked about as such a wonderful, loving thing, da da da, white picket fences and all that BS. The fact of the matter is families aren't always that way. And sometimes families can be very toxic and detrimental to still be around even as an adult, because, you know, a prime example is when, when I finally sat down with my dad at 40 and I said, okay, dad, I'm old enough. Now you can tell me why you and mom split. Let's hear your version. I sat there and my dad is across from me and my husband's in between both of us. And he told me, 
as an outsider watching this, because my dad got agitated, my dad got angry. My husband said, it was like watching you go into a little kid. You morphed into like a nine-year-old. Your dad is, is angry still, obviously, and you're now a kid. You are a 40-year-old woman, but yet you, you are acting like a kid. And this is part of that toxicity in those relationships. I have not actually gone to physically see my dad since 2009. And some people can think I'm really shitty for doing that. But the fact of the matter is now he's just angry because he can't hear. He's had some trouble in his life and he can't hear. And while I would, I know I should go see him. There's also a lot of stress factor that why do I want to go down there and have him yell? Why do I want to go down there and have a toxic interaction when I can text him here? He doesn't want to do this. We could, I, I tried one Christmas doing this with him and holding up a sign and he read it, but it, he doesn't like this. So why do I want to go down there unless it's for a couple of hours, which is crazy. And then, you know, why, why do I want to put right. myself in that, that trauma? And I know you understand, but some people who have that tight family unit don't. Right. Exactly. And for me, just because of the situation that I was raised then. I actually have a very hard time believing that there's families out there like that. Um, I think people are actually, you know, their, their delusion is of a perfect family is wrong. I think they're lying to themselves when they say that they do have a perfect family. And it's like this Norman Rockwell painting. Um, just for the simple fact that there isn't a such thing as a perfect family. Um, every family's got their dirty laundry. And it's just that, you know, we're, you know, people like us, we're just an open book about it because what's the point? Because if we keep it under the covers and under the rug, we're only hurting ourselves because that's like part of the healing process is being truthful about our situation when we was growing up. Right. I mean, there, there's a time because my mom at a certain point, I was living with my fifth grade teacher. And for a long time, I, I would always be like, you know, this was just a big rejection, blah, blah, blah. Cause I lived with this teacher on and off for several years. But then I sat back for a second. I stepped back and said, okay, but think about it this way. As bad as that situation was, and as toxic as that teacher was, your mom was not mentally right either. So be glad that you weren't there with her all the time. Be glad that you didn't have to face her all those times that you got a reprieve. I mean, the teacher, the teacher prided herself being a disciplinarian. The first time I ever stayed over her house, I slept in the same bed with her and she had a Doberman and she tells me, she's like, okay, do not move. If you have to go to the bathroom during the night, tap me lightly on the shoulder because I have to let the dog out. Otherwise, the dog will rip you to shreds. Okay, sure. That, <laughs> that sounds fun. Yeah, it I, does. I, I mean, <laughs> it was just, it was one of those things where it's like you, you have to look at the good and bad and you have to try to, when you're trying to heal yourself, even though all the, the crap and the muck, and I'm not saying to whitewash, and I'm not saying that at all, but you have to reframe it so you can make some kind of peace of mind from it for yourself. Because if you don't, right. you just live in constant torment. Exactly. And that's the thing I was about ready to say. 
is, you know, is, is that when you're growing up and that is a toxic relationship and then you go, you know, like in my situation, I go like the whole year without even talking to my mother and I'm in counseling to try to work through all this stuff. It's still a toxic relationship for me because I have to relive it. Mm-hmm. And as I'm reliving it, I'm reliving the whole situation in my head and trying to figure out, you know, well, if I would have done this differently, would that have made my parents love me more? Would this have made the situation outcome differently? Would they have accepted me more? Um, you know, and not only was I like living through that, but I was also living through the whole situation of being gay. Um, you know, living through that as an adolescent, um, you know, and that's a lot to deal with, you know, being raised by alcoholic parents, being, you know, keep, having to keep my sexuality under the covers um, because I didn't know how they would react. There, there was a situation I talked about this on an episode of the podcast um, recently, and it's something that I'm not very, I, I've never been outspoken about because it was kind of, there was a shame attached to it. And when I first left my first husband, um, I had gone down to New Orleans to go see my dad. I, and my husband, I should say this before to preface this, when my husband met my best friend at the time, he asked her to take naked pictures. That was the very first thing he ever said to her besides hello. And then he tells me later, he would like to buy a bottle of champagne and have a menage trois with her. Now, I'm not saying that I would be opposed to having a menage a trois. I'm not even getting there where this is not even really relevant, but it is because the man didn't even buy a bottle of champagne when we got <laughs> married. Okay. So I go down to New Orleans with my friend. We went and stopped in Dallas. We flew down to Dallas, got my car, and then flew down to New Orleans so my dad could look over the car. And so my stepmom at the time decides, hey, let's all go out. Okay. You know, I'm free. I'm, I'm single now. Not officially divorced, but I'm single. So let's go out. Okay. So we go to Bourbon Street and she takes me to a male strip joint, which I'm like, I could do a better dance on a pole than that. Um, and the drink was like this small and it was $8. It was incredibly bad. And then, oh, we, went, then we went and got a hurricane at Paddo's. And then we went to another bar that was one of my dad's bars that he frequented. And a longtime friend of my dad and who knew me was there at the bar with one of his friends. And he was a couple of years older than me. So we're at the bar and my friend, my best friend decides that she wants to have a drinking game with the guy. So needless to say, I don't drink that much. So I end up, um, she, he, he had gotten her gold schlager and he didn't want it or she didn't want it. And I'm like, ah, oh, just give it to me. All right. So I'm already telling you I've mixed in it. I've mixed a screwdriver. I've mixed a hurricane and now I'm drinking gold schlager. You know, this is not a good mix at all. So I'm quite drunk. Um, and I, I'm smoking, which I don't do. And, uh, so her and I start making out and my hand is on the guy's crotch, but my stepmother <laughs> takes pictures of this. Now, why would you take pictures of this? The only reason you would take pictures of this is if you decide you want to shame somebody, right? Why else are you doing it? So mind you, this happened a couple of times. She took off her bra. One of the guys is wearing a bra. Okay. So it was fun. We were drunk. The table's full of drinks, whatever. And yes, I did get sick. So the next day we go to Walmart and the problem with getting sick, I never threw up until like the next day. So it was just one of those kind of, Oh no. Yeah. So anyway, she goes and gets the pictures developed and she shows my father. She shows my dad. It was like her pride and joy. She's laughing about it as she's showing him these pictures. 
and I'm mortified because what the hell? So fast forward, I've moved in with them because I'm going to college and I start calling my friend because she's up here. And my dad accuses me of being a lesbian because I'm calling her and she's calling me. So oh, I must, yes. it must be my lesbian lover. So fast forward and I move up here again and my friend and I have a relationship. We tell each other we love each other because I am so desperate to feel like I am loved that I, I go along with this. And we have this relationship for a week. And when we move apartments, that stops. She just stops. No rhyme, reason, nothing. Just stops. There's no more. I love you. There's nothing. And I had a lot. I can't tell you how much shame that has been in my life because I would never talk about this little liaison, little experience in my life because there was shame attached to it. And it's just recently that I've been willing to share that because it's like we, especially in the eighties and yeah, I could have talked about this to you when we were talking about you coming out, but I didn't because it's like, there's still been that shame and that, that thing bobbled up inside of me that, well, am I that way? No, it was a, it was an experiment. It wasn't that I really was into it. I wanted to feel loved. And that goes back to, you want to feel loved so bad. I had just left my husband. I was dating a guy who ended up, which we did talk about, who ended up being gay. And so I wasn't, I wanted to be loved. And where does that, let, let's go right back to this. <clears throat> where did that start from? Oh, when you were a kid. Right. You were so desperate to be in love. So now somebody's playing with you and they offer you this relationship. So you dive in because it's like, oh, somebody loves me. I, I'm not that person anymore. But at the time, I made these choices because, right. and, and honestly, in my opinion, it doesn't matter if it's a guy or a girl that you're in love with. If you're in love with them and they love you back, that's fine. But my point is there was so much shame attached to that, that in order for me to heal as a person, I have to be honest about that. I have to be honest about that relationship. And I'm sure some people will have a field day with it. But the fact of the matter is, why did my stepmother do that? Why did she take those pictures? Oh, so she could shame me to my dad. And why? Right. Why? You know, and I think that's why my first marriage came about is because of the unconditional love that my first wife gave from the word go. You know, because I was needing that. Um, you know, and I was only 15 when I met my first wife, um, she was 24, you know, um, like I said, you know, I was with the guy when I met her and I broke up with him like on the spot just to be with my first wife. And we were together for 14 years, I believe it was. She passed away when I was 29. Um, you know, but. And I tried to do that again, and it was just a train wreck because there was no love there. Right. And, you know, and that stems, I think, from the, the relationship that me and my parents had. Um, but so, yeah, I wasn't ready at that time to, to confront that relationship that I had with my parents. I wasn't ready to do that. Well, and if you, and that's the thing, it's like, I will never talk to my dad about what I just talked about. And I know he can't hear it. So I'm not worried about it, but <laughs> there, the fact is, why do you create shame to your kids? Because they, whether it be their sexual orientation or the person that they fall in love with is a different color skin. Why are you so wrapped up in that? Why does it back to what you said? Everybody has this 
you know, Norman Rockwell feel of this is what a relationship should look like. This is what a marriage should look like. No, it doesn't look like that. It doesn't. Right. It don't. It doesn't. And, you know, and, you know, and I hope that there's, you know, somebody that's listening to this, to this episode that maybe that, you know, it might click and it might help somebody, you know, to maybe recognize that, you know, that they have that toxic relationship, whether it be with house or somebody that they're dating or maybe even with their parents, um, you know, cause just because they're your parent or your spouse or something like that there doesn't mean that it's okay. You don't have to stay in that. Um, you know, and it's hard for a child to maybe recognize that they have to get out. Um, and it's hard for a child to get out of that relationship, especially if they're a minor. Well, very true. And, and the thing is those relationships, <laughs> those toxic relationships do not teach us how to say no. And going back to that friend, you know, while the relationship was good, once we moved to the city, it became to a certain point that she's like, oh, can you take me to band practice? Oh, can you do this? Oh, can you do that? And I was her chauffeur. And, and of course, living in the city, you had to find parking and everything. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't say no. And I didn't say I didn't never fought with my first husband because I didn't want to rock the boat because back to that childhood thing, you don't want to upset anybody. So I didn't fight with him until we were separated. Then when we were on the phone and there was distance, I could speak my mind, but I wouldn't say anything. And with the friend, well, she had punched her sister in the face. So the last thing I want is this girl who is obviously she has no boundaries about going after somebody. I don't want to say, you know, I don't want to say no until I got myself into therapy and started learning boundaries and everything. And it was like she wanted to go to the movie. And I'm just like, no. She's like, what did you say? I said, I said, no, we're not going. I'm not going with you. It's going to rain. I don't feel like going. And she went and changed and she comes back in and she's like, are you going? And I'm like, no. She slammed her door, of course, when she went away. And then she comes back in, goes back in her room, slams it again, comes back out. Are you coming? I'm like, no, I am not coming. Slams the door as she leaves the house or the apartment, goes downstairs and it's pouring down raining when she comes back. She's drowned. She's soaking wet. She storms in, doesn't want to talk to me. Okay. I waited until she dried off and she came back in the living room and she's like, I said, so how was the show? It was fine. And it was in that moment that I realized, okay, take your power back. She doesn't own you. Say no. You can say no. And that's why I go back to that moment because I easily fell for that relationship with her for that week because I was so, I didn't know my boundaries. I didn't know that I could say no. I didn't know that you know, while I wanted to be loved, I didn't know that I had to see past just the love feeling and see, is this person toxic? That's another thing about relationships. We, we got that endorphin rush from the feeling of love, but are we really looking at the person and going, wait a second, this is a toxic shit show right there in our face. Why right. are we falling? in? I mean, when I look at my first husband, we went on one date and he moved in with me. I mean, if that's not bad shit crazy. And three days later, he proposed to me. And when I look back at that, it's like, well, I wanted to be a mom. So I had his kids. But the whole fact is I was so insecure and terrified of being alone that he was perfect. I can't I've spent enough time alone with me now that I know myself better. Right. At the time, it was just like I was a kid. Right. And, you know, and. You know, going back to taking the power back, it's really important. Um, 
when you can get to that point where you are taking your own power back, because that's the breaking point. Mm-hmm. That is when things will turn around and you're better off because then that's when you're saying to yourself that you refuse to be in that toxic relationship any longer. Um, and that's kind of like what I don't know with my mother. Um, you know, my dad was already dead. Um, he died from cirrhosis of the liver. Um, unfortunately, he basically just drunk himself to death. Um, you know, and that's basically what, what I don't with my mom is I told her, you know, because they raised me and my two sisters to be like, you know, you have to show you can say something all you want, but it doesn't matter unless you show it. And and I wrote I wrote all that into a letter to her and I sent it to her. And she called me and she told me she's like, Well, what don't you know, what do you mean that, you know, that I said, you know, that we love you and all that there, but you, we never showed it to you. And they did it. They did it. Because if they really meant that they loved me, they never would have put me through the hell that they put me through of, you know, being, you know, verbally abusive and physically abusive. If they loved me, they never would have done that. So they never showed what they said, you know, and that was me taking the power back at that point, at that point, you know, and that was a year ago. And and once you have that power, it's still not that it's all set in stone. You still have a lot to work through. You know, what what you're saying there reminds me of something my mom told one of my little kid friends. um, And my mother repeated the story many times. That's the reason I remember it. She, she repeat, she spanked me for something and the little girl never got spanked. And she's like, why do you spank her? And my mom's like, because I love her and I want her to know right from wrong. But she equated spanking me with loving me, which maybe that's what your parents thought when they thought that they were being abusive. That was how they knew love. And I mean, I'm not saying that that's right because it's not. No, but depending on where their past was, is that how they learned love? I mean, was there, do you remember your grandparents? Were they affectionate? Um, My, my nanny, which is my mom's mom. She was a very affectionate woman, very affectionate. Um, You know, because my mom, she came from the family of 21 children. Um, And they all said they had a very good, good childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mom, my dad's mom, she never, you know, beat the crap out of her kids. But see, I often wonder, because I look at what I know about my grandmother, my dad's mom and my dad's mom. I didn't know this until I think 2005 that she used to drink men under the table. She'd have some casserole, drink men under the table. You know, this isn't the grandma I knew. This is the woman who liked to party. This is the woman who, you know, her, she apparently was pregnant by her first husband. And then her dad, because the marriage had ended, her dad knocked her down the stairs to try to have to, to kill the baby, which didn't happen. But there was a lot of abuse she grew up with. And when I look at my parents, I try to step back and go, okay, my grandmother that I knew was not that person. My grandmother had every cookie you could find in a cookie jar, every kind of, you know, fun kids drink. We had soda in the the refrigerator. But if you had a certain type of cookie, she had, I think, 
eight grandkids plus all the, the in-laws and she'd have all of our favorite cookies in this copper cookie tin. She, she placated all of us. This was not the woman that you would imagine her to be. However, as an adult, when I look at her, I see how she used to play each other, play us against each other, mm-hmm. but we didn't notice it as kids. So what, I, what I'm getting at is like, so when I look at my dad, it's like, I kind of see it's like, okay, so the alcoholism most likely came from her, you know, and I'm sure my grandpa drank too, because he was also a fighter at one point. So, you know, there's this weird walk when I look at them and then I look at my dad. And when I look at my mom, it's like my grandmother who helped raise me at a certain point, she was very affectionate, but I got to wonder what she was like when she was in her teens and early twenties as a mother, because she was really young and I don't want to give her a pass, but I have to look at the bigger picture and go, something might not have been as what as it was with us you know as as grandparents they're one way but what were they like as parents right right exactly exactly and and i think Um, i think that's where the generational thing comes from too but go ahead um you know and i can agree with that because you know i wasn't around when she was a child and i wasn't around when he was a child either um, you know, I mean, I know that on my dad's side, he really didn't get along with his brothers and sisters. Um, they fought all the time. So I don't know, maybe that's what led to his alcoholism. I don't know. Um, but my mother, you know, being from a family of 21 brothers and sisters, they each had their own chore that they had to do. So he, you know, was brought up in a working family um so i don't know if that contributed to uh, her alcoholism or not but really that's not an excuse no at some point you have to be an adult and accept the responsibility for what you're doing point blank there's no reason to not accept your consequences for your actions Uh, you know i I did right and i don't disagree with you i I just, I guess for me, trying to reframe them as to who they were to me, I have to do that for my own mental, my mental thinking, because it's like, where did that come from? Was it all really about me or was it from their past? You know? Right. Um, I don't know. And, you know, maybe that's why I get this whole black and white thing is from my mother, um, because she was like that is like that it's it's either this way or the highway um and i also get that from my father too because uh, they both was like that it's either this way or that way you don't get a choice there's no gray area all if there were right exactly because if there was a gray area you're going to get your butt beat um it's either their way or no way and i don't know maybe that's why i got the attitude that i do about a lot of things that you have to accept responsibility for what you do it's nobody else's fault but your own. But you want to know something? I learned a very, very valuable lesson the very first day as a claims adjuster. I had a parking lot accident in Minnesota and somebody had snow in their, their back window. It was my insured. And he got mad at me because I asked him what happened. He's like, I looked to my left, I looked to my right, and I backed up and I hit him. Okay, so the accident's your fault. No, the accident's not my fault at all. 
how do you figure? He has the right of way, sir. You know, I, I didn't say, how do you figure to him? I was just like, I said, sir, he has the right of way. I said, did you clean the snow off your window? Cause it had been snowing. He's like, no. So did you see him? No, he should have seen me. Sorry, sir, but you backed into him and the accident is your fault. I want to talk to your supervisor. It was in that claim that I realized that most people do not want to take responsibility for their actions. And that goes back to somebody putting an electric heating pad into a microwave oven and catching their kitchen on fire and then wanting to sue. Logically, logically, you're at fault on both scenarios. But it's much easier to blame everybody else than take responsibility for what we do. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I think that's where the, how, to be blunt, the unfucking of your mind comes because you have to look at what your parents did, but you don't want to totally blame them for you being fucked up because now you're an adult and you have to make different choices. And while we have all the trauma from the past, we have to take that ball of yarn and untangle it and try to relearn how to be confident and take care of ourselves as best we can do because it's reparenting ourselves. Right. And, you know, and I, I do put the blame where it does need to be put. Um, You know, I can't blame them for the bipolar. I cannot, I can blame them a little bit for my depression. Um, you know, because of what they've done. Um, I do blame them for the PTSD. And I do blame them for the anxiety. Um, you know, because that was directly caused because of the trauma mm-hmm. that they caused me. Mm-hmm. Um, but now, and that leads up to my name change. Um, because with having my name change, because uh, I was named after my father. I was a junior. Um, and by shedding that name and disassociating myself with them in that manner, um, it has relieved a lot of my PTSD and my anxiety. Um, and that's exactly what my doctor was going for. And, you know, my psychiatrist and mm-hmm. my counselor, it has helped a lot. You know, instead of having anxiety every day or maybe two or three times a week, I'm having anxiety maybe once or twice a month. Nice. And my PTSD is basically almost non-existent. Nice. Nice. I've had other guests that have changed their names. And it's funny because I had the opportunity. I've been married twice and I've had the opportunity to change my last name. But I've always said I have been DM Needham for all of my life. So while I have changed my first name slightly it's still i mean god given is dawn but i don't want to be when you screw my name up it's a man's name don if you're going to screw me up at least i'll be donna i'll be a female you know and i just i would have my first husband's like well aren't you going to change i'm like no and my second one just was like well my dad's not going to be happy it's like well sorry not changing it this is it this is who i am Right. You know, and for me, it was just more about I didn't want to I didn't want to lose my identity completely to a man, even though technically, I guess I did when I was born with my dad's name. But, you know. Right. See, and I made sure like when I 
when I chose my name, my new name, that it was fitting to my situation. Um, you know, not very many people can appreciate it, so, you know, because they're like, well, why did you choose that name for? Well, there's a reason, you know, because my new name is Zagan Seth. And, you know, Zagan is a fallen angel. And Seth is um, a child of chaos. That's a very fitting name for everything mm -hmm. that I've been through. Um, and that's why I chose that name. You know, it, I didn't like to sit down and come up with that name overnight. It took me a year, maybe a little bit longer to, to, you know, to choose that name. And Trusty? Trusty is my mother-in-law's last name. Okay. She insisted that I took, take her last name. Okay, fair um, enough. She's more of a mother to me than my own mother. And that, that's the thing about having toxic parental relationships. You end up finding somebody that, I don't want to say fills that void, but you end up finding a person that is more mothering to you, that you can learn lessons. And you find these people throughout your life. And <clears throat> it's like they are looking for, for somebody to be nurturing to, and you need the nurturing. So you end up embracing this relationship and some of them are very great and they're very helpful. It's rare yes. that you run, run across somebody that's toxic, but sometimes you do. Right. I mean, I'm very lucky. My mother-in-law is very awesome. She's a wonderful woman. Um, I mean, I can talk to her just about anything, anything at all. Anything. Well, I think that was... I've always heard these stories, horror stories from, from women about, oh my God, my in-laws, I can't stand them. My mother could not stand my grandmother, my dad's mom. They did not get along oil and water. In fact, when my mom died and we had our ashes at my grandmother's house, my grandmother was still bad mouthing my mom right there next to her urn. Anyway, um, but when I look at, when I look at the people that have come into my life that have that, that potential to be supportive, they've done it. It's like, they've stepped up to the plate where my mom would not have been able to handle. I, in fact, I think if my mom were still alive, we wouldn't have a relationship. I'm pretty positive because I see the toxicity of her full blown now. And the fact is like, she pulled me out of, she, she, I often wonder, you know, by talking about this, if I could lose my high school graduation diploma, but it's been 40 years almost, but she used a fake address to send me to a school that had less African-American students because oh. she didn't want her daughter in her junior, senior year to possibly. She never said that, though. What she said was the school's bad. OK, but you're sending my stepbrother to the junior high, which is in the same neighborhood. Oh, which, by the way, I'm working at the McDonald's here in the area, which really just kind of goes back to what you're saying, forming friendships. I had to lie to my school friends because I was out of district. And one foul swoop, swoop and I'm kicked out of school. Uh. So that set up a whole nother weird thing because it's like, I can't tell my friends where I live. Right. Exactly. So exactly. it's just toxic. And I know where I was going somewhere and I went off on that tangent, but I think when we find people that can support us and love us unconditionally, and that's where I was going with, with the in-laws, I always heard these stories from women that were like, my in-laws are so toxic. I can't stand them. 
And the fact of the matter is both sets of my in-laws from both marriages, they were wonderful. I got along with them fine. My second husband's siblings, and eh, not so much, but the, the, the parents, they were good to me. They were always good to me. And you get, yeah. I think, I think we get, I think we appreciate those people more than most people that come from quote unquote, normal relationships that still have relationships with their parents. They don't look at their, their in-laws as being good because they're still hung up on their own family. Right. So. Right. I mean, this is, you know, my mother-in-law, I can't wait to see her one. Um, it's very exciting. I usually text her on Saturday. What time you want us to come over tomorrow? You know, I'm, I talk to her more than my husband talks to his own mom. Um, you know, she's just wonderful. He really stepped up to the plate to be there for me, you know, because she knows how much piece of crap my, my own mother is. Um, you know, it, it's just wonderful that I've got such a relationship with her. So let's change the topic before we, before I let you go, cause we're almost into an hour now. So how's your, uh, portals and gateways going? It's going really great. Going really great. Um, into my sixth season now, almost two years mm-hmm. that I'm in, you know, doing it now it'll be two years this July. Nice. Congratulations. It's going really good. Thank you. I didn't think it was going to survive, but it has. (laughs) I think actually you were, I would, your show was one of the, well, I think you were the second show I was on initially. So yeah. And you were the third show for me. Yeah. Yeah. That was a great show. I had fun. I had fun. So is there anything that you have coming up that you want to plug or anything before we sign off? Um, I'm actually going to be doing a Portals and Gateway show about the seven most haunted items in the world. Okay. That sounds very cool. It's funny because I sold an hourglass recently and somebody reached out to me when she bought it. Before she bought it, she goes, is there any weird history on it? And I'm like, no, not at all. <laughs> I just sold the haunted Dow. Really? Yes, I did. Mm-hmm. Yes, I did. I got rid of that thing fast. <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't want anything haunted. I really wouldn't know. Uh, one of my listeners actually gave it to me. Um, we actually had to put it in a bus box and remove it from the house, and so we kept it out in the garage for like a year. Um, this thing was like really weird. We kept it in the front room. We woke up the next morning and it was in our bedroom. Um, so I put this thing in a bus box and moved it out to the garage, and there she sat for the whole year. And somebody offered me some money for it. I said, not a problem. I'm shipping the thing to you tomorrow. <laughs> wow. I just, I wouldn't want to, it always amazes me when somebody's like, oh, I'll buy it. Why would you want that? If it's a, if it's got some bad juju, why would you want this? Well, I sent that bad juju all the way to Tennessee. <laughs> <laughs> but you understand what I'm getting at. It's just like, I don't understand why anybody would want this. I know it. I know it. But this lady that my listener that I got it from, she just did not want it because it caused a lot of havoc with her relationship and within her house and within the whole apartment building that she lived at. So I said, sure, I'll take it. I'll take it. Mm -mm. I took Mm -mm. it all right. (laughs) No, 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 no. Sorry. Pass. Hard pass. Hard pass. Yep. Took me a whole year to get rid of it. Wow. Yeah. Mm -mm. Yep. 
Mm-mm-mm. Finally found a taker. <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, Zagan, it's uh, it's been amusing, and you know, and, and I don't want to say amusing. The last part here has been amusing. The other part, I feel your pain. I I can only understand so much of what you went through because I only had the physical abuse a couple of times in my life. So, but the biggest the biggest takeaway here is the fact that you know your parents are supposed to protect you. They're supposed to love you unconditionally. They're supposed to care about you. Right. And in a lot of cases, which, you know, I don't want to get political. We talk about, you know, abortion should be banned, but the truth of the matter is not everybody should be a parent. Exactly. Just because you can, just because you can screw doesn't make you a good material for a parent. Exactly. Um, and instead of worrying about, what may happen as far as, well, it's a baby. It's a, okay. But is that baby really going to have a good life or is this exactly. baby going to be tormented? Exactly. I'm glad you're here, uh, but I hate that you went through all that, but I'm glad you're here. And, and I think that's the, the bigger caveat. It's like, we shouldn't be legislation le- legislating about children. If you're not willing to make sure that they're fed and make sure that they have a decent home to be in that's not going to be abusive. Because how many times do we hear about kids ending up dead because, well, they were abused or neglected? Or committing suicide at the age of eight years old. Yeah. Just to escape it. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, think, I think there's a bigger caveat, and I'm sure some people will be pissed off because, you know, abortion is wrong, but... That you have to look at the bigger picture. It's just not about this this body. It's not about the person that's in there. It's not about the baby. It's not about the fetus. It's about what happens after. Right. That's the bigger picture. Exactly. Exactly. So now that I'm on my soapbox, I'll get off my soapbox. And thank you for joining <laughs> us. So while I can relate to some of Zagan's trauma, I didn't, fortunately, I did not go through the abuse he went through. I had some smattering of abuse, physical abuse, mental abuse. Well, that's a whole nother caveat. And we didn't dig really deep into that, just touched on it slightly. But for anybody that has gone through physical or mental abuse, you have to know that it does affect you, even though you may not realize it, eventually it comes, comes home to roost. And you have to step back and start going, okay, how do I make these changes? How do I need to make these changes in my life? I want to be a stronger person. I want to, I don't want to be a prisoner of my depression or my anxiety. And very much like an alcoholic, those are things that can come back at you. Those things can come back and be triggered and you can have a great day and something can trigger you and take you right back to that moment. But the thing is, as you go forward, and you work through your healing, then you see the changes you can make. You realize that, you know what? I don't have to, it, I don't have to let this overtake me. I don't have to get in so much worry and fear that I'm trapped. I can dust the, the muck off of me and I can move forward. And that's not an easy thing. I'm not saying it's like, oh, yeah, here we are. We're good. No, it's not. It's a lot of work. And, it's, it, and you have to be willing to confront yourself. You know, sometimes when we look at people that don't want to confront themselves, they're always avoiding things. I mean, there's things that I avoid. I admit that. But, you know, you have to 
you have to really look at yourself. You can't always escape. One of the great things I love doing when I, when I really want to just escape, at least when I was younger, would be to write and watch TV and put myself on a TV show just because it was that much better than my life. While writing has turned into, dare I say, a career, and it's not so much an escape, there's still a bit of an escapism to it because, well, I get to live another life. But that being said, I also know who I am. And you have to be able to face yourself. You have to be able to call yourself on your own bullshit. And that's not always an easy thing to do. And some people will sit there and say, well, why would you do that? Let, like, let's talk about what I said, you know, the shame factor. There has been so many years that I would not share those pictures. I w- and I haven't shared the picture still, but I wouldn't even talk about it except with a couple of close friends, because I didn't want them to look at me and think, oh my gosh, what the hell? I had an experimental relationship, big fucking deal. Many people do it. Many people don't talk about it. But the fact of the matter is there was no shame in it. I did it. So what? Big fucking deal. Maybe part of me did it, which I didn't say to Zagan, but maybe part of me did it was because I knew that's what my ex-husband wanted. My ex-husband wanted that feeling. He wanted to see both of us together and well, eat your heart out, baby, because it happened and you weren't there. But, but the whole fact is the truth of it. It really was about wanting to feel loved. And you have to come to a place of security with yourself that you love yourself enough and you're strong enough to realize that the person that's sitting there saying, hey, beautiful, you know, I love you so much. When I look back at that first, first relationship I had, and, you know, I told, told Zagan, went on a date with him and he moved in basically. When I look at that girl and I have to forgive her because the good thing that came out of it was I was a stepmom and I had these two wonderful girls, but I was so desperate to be loved and, and not be alone. So desperate to be loved that I was willing to just say, oh, he loves me. Okay. And I mean, there's a Bugs Bunny cartoon or Looney Tunes cartoon where there's a little dog running around a bulldog going, yes, Mike, yes, Mike. And in a way, that's who I was at that time. Anything he said, it was okay. I was all right. Until he said I couldn't do something that I really wanted to do. And that is when things started to go south. So I gained my power back. And once I started gaining my power back, I decided I had to make a choice. And while I love those kids, I knew I had to get my freedom. I knew that eventually I wouldn't be in a good place. As the kids got older and didn't need me, what was going to be left of that relationship? So I left. And while I hate hurting the kids because that tore at me and took a piece of me, it was the best thing I could have done for myself. So if you find yourself in a situation that you settled because this is you're used to being in a toxic relationship, you're used to being in a toxic environment, this is all you've known. Talk to a therapist, get some help, talk to friends, get yourself out of that toxicity and start healing yourself. Yes, it's going to take work and it's not going to be easy, but it'll be worth it. It will be worth it. So on that note, I will step off my soapbox, which it seems like I've been on that.
quite a bit today. If you have a question, comment, or concern, and please don't come at me hard, uh, you can email me at Donna, D-A-U-N-A, at better2podcast.com. That's Donna at better2podcast.com. If you missed an episode, you can catch up at better2podcast.com. And if you want to follow us on social media, you can do so because all the social media links are there. So on that note, the show is sponsored by dmneedham.com and Kitty Mystic, where you can find books such as My Days with the Dark Muse and Love is Worth Waiting For. And also you can get an intuitive tarot reading. And... Our sound and audio is done by Rich Zai of Third Ear Audio Productions, as always. So I hope you have a wonderful weekend, day or evening, whenever you choose to listen. And I'll catch you next time, guys. Bye. Better Two Podcast is mixed, edited, and produced by Rich Zai of Third Ear Audio Productions. 